This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Since the first protests on May 26th, millions of people across America and across the world have taken to the streets to express their grief and anger and demand justice for the killing of George Floyd by Minnesota law enforcement. But that's not the outdoors community, right? The outdoors is for everyone. Naturalists are so welcoming. Well, it might seem like a hundred years ago now, but just before the very first protest began, another racist incident was already sparking outrage online. So there's an incident in New York Central Park caught on camera and it's going viral. Christian Cooper, a black man who had been bird watching in New York City for decades, was in the Ramble, 36 acres of semi-forested woodland in Central Park, when he asked a nearby woman to obey the park rules and leash her dog. She refused, and before the confrontation ended, the woman called the police while Christian recorded her with his smartphone. Amy Cooper has apologized but was fired from her job. Join me now as Christian. We say Outside In is a show about the natural world and how we use it, but the history of these spaces will show that white gatekeepers have long held a great deal of power in deciding who gets access to the natural world and how. And it points to how the experience of public outdoor spaces isn't the same for everyone. Brenton Mock wrote in an article for City Lab that peaceful green spaces just as easily induce anxiety and trauma for black and brown people, especially when they know the cops can be unleashed at any moment. But this particular incident has also inspired what you might call a celebratory response. It's called hashtag Black Birders Week. And from May 31st to June 5th, the initiative shared pictures, stories, and held online events that highlighted black voices, while at the same time examining how outdoor spaces can be implicitly or explicitly threatening and dangerous to people of color. Danielle Bellany is a wildlife biologist and one of the co-organizers behind Black Birders Week. Danielle, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Um, I kind of want to just start with a little with a little real talk. So like if there are listeners out there who are rolling their eyes and saying like, do we need to bring race into birding too? Like, can we just bat that aside? Like, what are the types of experiences that you've had with white birders? Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that people think that racism doesn't happen in uh, the birding community is pretty, I mean, it's laughable to me. Racism is going to happen anywhere where I am. It's because I'm black that racism happens to me. Um, so um, I've been followed around by people that are on trails um, because I think I look suspicious with my binoculars while I'm staring at bushes or like trees and stuff. Um, or I've also had the cops called on me while I've been working. Um, and it's really frightening when those situations happen. And it's just like, I'm just trying to do my job. I'm trying to like out, be out here and enjoying a nature just like the rest of us. Can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, like your relationship with the natural world, how you got excited about it, what, what it means to you? Sure. So I am from San Antonio, Texas. I was definitely a very outdoorsy kid growing up. I would pick up the bugs from the lawn. I would pick up snakes too, like as like a five, four year old, um, definitely fearless from the jump of it. Um, I did not know that wildlife biology was something you could actually pursue as a job. <laughs> I thought you could only be like a zookeeper or like a veterinarian to work with animals. But no, it turns out there's so many, there's so, so many other opportunities. Um, and what got me really into research and really into birds was this um, internship I had doing nest searching in South Texas. And I basically got to watch baby birds grow up the whole summer and it was really Really, really cool to see how a bird turns from an egg 
to a full bird in like a couple of days. It's, yeah. a, it's an unbelievable process. <laughs> and um, I've been watching this uh, black-throated hummingbird nest in my backyard, my first ever hummingbird nest that I found. They mm. just left the nest yesterday. And it's, I mean, I, I'm so happy to be able to watch that whole process happen. It's just magical. I love it. We have we have Phoebes that nest under the porch every year, and mm-hmm. the great thing about them being under the porch is you can look between the cracks of the boards and like peek at them like really really close, like a couple inches above the nest. It's so, so fun. Cute. I know. <laughs> um, so how did it come together? Because I, I I have to confess, I saw like I saw the hashtag, I saw a bunch of you know my feed was sort of full of it, and then but then it wasn't until I clicked on the organizers list and saw how many co-organizers there are that that I realize this is really something that you know <laughs> it it seems like it came together very quickly but a lot of enthusiasm from a lot of different quarters oh absolutely um so immediately after the incident you know uh the black scientist uh, the black stem group that I'm in we have a group chat and we were just you know just chatting it's it's usually there just for us to hang out and like have a space to be together um, but when this incident happened, we were like, oh, oh, we have to say something about this. So a couple of us just had some independent tweets. But then back in the group, um, Anna Gifty Opuku Agayamen, she is an economist with no background in uh, uh, birds or uh, wildlife sciences. She was like, you, you guys could actually make a thing out of this. Like, this can get some attention. Um, and within two days, we had Black Birders Week organized. We had all kinds of things, you know, lined up. And I think the excitement to put our voices out there and um, to also just create a community with Black outdoor enthusiasts um, helped us and pushed us to go all those sleepless hours <laughs> to create this event in two days. It's amazing. Yeah. And it seems like you've had a lot of um, interest because you know I just heard <laughs> I just heard someone being interviewed on One A earlier on on NPR oh, for wow. the I think for the, I think for the full hour, oh um, and we had we had like I think five listeners email us and say that that we should do something about it. it and it's just been everywhere. My jaw is dropping right now. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what were the goals? Like, what did you want to accomplish with this? First off, to uplift and recognize that Black birders and Black outdoor enthusiasts exist. Um, oftentimes, you know, especially a hobby like birding is considered like, oh, that's an old white guy kind of activity. Like, oh, that's pretty boring. Like, why would you do that? We wanted to provide reassurance through community by reaching out and letting other people that are um, maybe isolated in their interest know that no no you you have friends we are here come come join us even though it's online we definitely have a community mm-hmm. um we also want our non-black peers to you know understand the experiences that black birders and black outdoor enthusiasts have that we're often uncomfortable and unwelcome in these spaces and we're really just out there trying to find a release trying to get rid of the stressors that you know black people have on their lives we are um, responding to the incident with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper, but this is also about the murders of other Black lives like Breonna Taylor, Monica Diamond, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, so many other Black lives being lost because of white supremacy and because of racism. We on the show have done uh, one birding episode a while ago. I interviewed a guy who was like the, who at the time had the big year record. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I'm like, have an entree into birder culture (laughs) with like the listers and the twitchers and like the people who are, who are very sort of, it's almost like a sport. Um, I guess I'm wondering 
is is how welcoming this sort of like quirky insular sometimes birding community has been to to black birders not just the stories of people seeing you with suspicion when you're out there with binoculars, but how actual other white birders react when there's a, suddenly a, a, someone who doesn't look like them in their group. Right. Um, so for uh, the twitchers, I, I just learned that word last night. So that that's <laughs> eye opening to me. Like, oh, y'all get called that. OK, cool. I'll stick with birders. <laughs> um, but I, I think birders in general just want more birders. <laughs> Want more yeah. birders to be birding. Want more people to have interest in birds because once you like slide somebody into like one little niche interest, they eventually understand like a grander scale of how conservation is really, really important. And you can do that by studying birds and being interested in birds and sending money to bird organizations. Um, so yeah, I think birders as a whole um, are very inviting. Um, however, again, you know, once you get inside the group you do start to realize, oh, you know, yeah, this is the same racism that I experienced when I'm, you know, at school or some other activity. The racism is still the same, but I think the welcomingness of birders and how they're so interested in birding um, definitely draws people in. I had seen you tweet that sometimes you feel like you're getting quizzed. Like, like, are you, are you really a birder? And they'll, they'll like ask you extra questions about like making sure that you're, uh, you're properly IDing birds that, you know, can make you feel like a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. And that happened, uh, less than, I think like two weeks ago, I was out in San Antonio out birding because I just needed to go out. This group of people, this group of uh, white birders were looking in a, in a, in a bush. And I was like, oh, they seem really excited. Maybe there's something interesting over there. So I walk up to the group and like, hey, what are y'all looking at? They turn around and look at me. They don't say anything. Turn back around, start looking at the bird again. I'm like, <laughs> okay, maybe they didn't hear me, even though I'm a respectable socially distanced, uh, distance away from them. But I'm like, okay, let me just ask them one more time. And they, they turn around. This time they actually like acknowledge me and they're like, oh, it's a, it's a gray cat bird. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I'm here in like my bird hat and like my bird scarf and like my bird shirt. Like I'm fully nerded out <laughs> in bird gear. Right. And I think- It's like, how else could I be signaling to you that honestly, I belong? my binoculars are on my chest. I've been like with my eBird app. Like I look like such a dork right now. Like let me be a dork with y'all. But I mean, I also don't care about the projections of white birders and what they think of me. I'm going to do what I do because I love it. And I don't need their validation to do that. What would you recommend for black people who are listening, who are who are interested in doing things like bird watching, but maybe feel hesitant because it is seen as such a white hobby and they need a little inspiration? Uh, do you? I mean, you can go out birding without binoculars. As long as you have an interest and a passion, that's really all you need. Um, also, you know, find us online at Black AF in STEM. Um, we we want to hear your voices. We want to connect with you. Like, that's why we are here. And, and then... Also, any recommendations for white people who are listening and, uh, you know, ways that they could be better uh, in, in terms of being welcoming and being allies? Um, sure. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would say speak up when you hear something that is racist. Like, I, we need our allies to be actively anti-racist. Um, and also donate. I mean, if you can donate to a local black organization, a black nature organization or something um, to help other black kids get access to these uh, these wonderful things that are outside, um, paving the way for for more more diversity. Um, if we understand like the the, the importance of ecological diversity in a system, um, the fact that we have so many connections through so many species and it makes a more resilient community 
we can do that same thing through diversity in our spaces. It'll make a more stronger and more uh, more resilient community in the same in the same sense. Officially, Blackbirders Week is over, but but obviously the importance of this isn't going anywhere. So I guess what's next? Yeah. Um, Yes, Blackbirders Week is ending soon, but I mean, Blackbirders Week is forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're, we're going to be out here like every day. Um, Black AF and STEM, we are a very um, biology, wildlife science heavy group, but we need to highlight more Black voices in all STEM topics. So come over and join our group so you can get highlighted in whatever really cool, interesting thing in STEM that you do. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to keep doing this. This is not where we're going to stop. Next year, yeah. Blackbirders Week is e- going to be even more popping. Yeah, every week is Blackbirders Week. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Danielle Bellany is a wildlife biologist and one of the co-organizers behind Blackbirders Week. Search the hashtag on Twitter to see some of the incredible posts the week inspired. And you can follow at BlackAF in STEM to keep tabs on what's next. There were so many amazing, inspirational, and sometimes heartbreaking stories that were shared as part of Blackbirders Week. So Danielle and her co-organizers asked you to share some of them with us via voicemail. Um, I am a veteran and a woman of color, and I found herpetology and wildlife biology Um, on my quest to become a veterinarian. And on that quest, I have met and had some very interesting um, things said to me from people feeling like, you know, they had to say something like, you know, what's up, my sister? It's just saying hello or, you know, I have to dab it instead of just shaking hands and I had one lady one time, we were on a prescribed bird, and she asked me, uh, aren't you afraid all that hair is going to get caught on fire? She said it right in front of the union rep. (laughs) No one said anything. So about a year ago, my supervisor found out that I was using my platform as a way to outreach to minority children about wildlife biology and public land and land management or whatever it was I could get out there. He was so, you know, hateful or, you know, discouraging with his no. It's made staying in wildlife biology very hard to deal with. It has made Um, Being a birder, difficult. Being a herpetologist, difficult. I just took all that in over the last year or so, and I I didn't post anything. I I stopped. I was discouraged, and I allowed myself to get discouraged and oppressed. and, And then one of the girls I follow on Instagram, who is also a herpetologist, started sharing about this hashtag in this page and I said let me see what this is about with all the things that are going on like I could see some people who look like me 
I could use some people who, you know, talk like me and have the same interests as me. And after more than a year of not posting, I decided that the best way to fight back with all that hate was love, love for what I do, love for sharing it on social media, love for sharing it with my family and friends. This page and this week and these posts have showed me like we're out here. I've never been so proud and so inspired and so motivated. I am so happy. This is Day Scott recording from Lander, Wyoming. The last week has been one of the most difficult weeks in my life. I am recovering from a traumatic brain injury. So anything in addition to that, that happens just puts me in a very challenging place emotionally. At a point last week, I didn't even know how to move forward in life. Like I was in this moment and I did not know what was gonna happen the second moment. It's already hard enough for me right now. Um, I was just thinking like, well, well, what next? What, how much more can I take? I didn't really hear from anybody in my community. Um, and then I got on social media and so many people were just condemning looters and using all sorts of unkind language. It was just very unpleasant uh, to read what they thought was most important. I kept wondering if they even thought about me when they looked at these incidents and murders um, that were just happening over the last few weeks. This is the same community that came together when I had a brain injury or when I had my car accident and they came together and took care of me. For me not to see them speak up or even check on me to say, oh, how are you doing? Text me, call me, like we live so close together. It was really an eye opener. As a black person in Wyoming, I don't walk around at night. I don't know, it just does, it just does not feel comfortable for me uh, to do that. Uh, when I'm out birding, I always make sure that my equipment can be seen. Um, along with my, right now, wearing a Cotopaxi backpack, it's really bright and colorful. Um, I want people to see me. I want people to know that, oh, that's, that's just day. We know her. Um, because I don't want any incidents. I am here by myself as a black woman in a small town in Wyoming. When I heard about Black Birders Week, I was able to channel some of the fear, anger, and sadness into hope, awareness, and comfort. I found my voice. Uh, I found a lane that I could be in as I cannot really attend any events with crowds uh, due to my brain injury. Uh, Black Birders Week simply made me feel like I belong Though it was through a virtual community, it created a voice that had been silenced due to fear. It opened the joy of sharing my gift and allowing others to experience nature through my eyes.
Those stories came to us from contributors to Black Birders Week. Thanks to everyone who sent us a story, but for whom we didn't have time. You can still send us your stories by recording one on your smartphone and sending it to outsidein at nhpr.org. Coming up, the urban heat island effect meets our American history of redlining. Stick around. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. As protests against police violence have swelled, so too have temperatures been climbing into one of the first serious heat spells of the year. Here's a clip from Tucson, Arizona's local news affiliate, KUGN9. It was over 100 degrees out, but people didn't seem to let that bother them. Among the protesters was Zach Bukarski, a recent University of Arizona grad from Chicago. Heat is not a factor. This is about more than just uncomfortable because the people who are getting oppressed by the... To some, the temperatures may seem divorced from the issues being protested. But a lot of connections can be made between high temperatures and demands for racial justice by black Americans. Severe heat is the deadliest form of extreme weather in the United States. And because of the design of urban spaces and the country's history of discriminatory housing policies, black Americans and other marginalized communities are affected in disproportionate numbers. To learn more, producer Taylor Quimby spoke with Rachel Ramirez, an environmental justice reporter at Grist, where you'll find her article, Another Legacy of Redlining, Unequal Exposure to Heat Waves. Um, Rachel, can you just start with just an overview of what is the, uh, the urban heat island effect? Right. So like climate change, the urban heat island effect is made by humans. So several researchers and even the Environmental Protection Agency have said that extreme heat kills um, more Americans each year than any other hazardous climate-related event. So the urban heat island effect, which makes extreme heat in cities even worse than it already is, happens because of traditional urban design choices. So tall buildings, dark roofs, um, black pavement cause the air to stagnate and they all attract and absorb um, sun rays. So that cities like New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles are way hotter than, say, a suburb that's just a few miles away from that city. And people of color are more likely to live in urban heat islands than white people. As a result, they face more health risks during a heat wave. I mean, is it measurably stronger or weaker even within a large city? You know, parts of the city uh, are on average have higher temps. The answer is yes. New York City, for example, is a heat island, but even heat islands can have hot spots. So neighborhoods like Hunts Points in the South Bronx or um, Sunset Park in Brooklyn, they heat up even more than the overall city. So the neighborhoods we call fence line communities, so quote unquote fence line communities where residents live alongside industrial facilities like peaker plants or power plants. Um, they tend to have fewer trees or green spaces that help cool, cool an area down. Um, these things like exacerbate the already hot heat conditions that typically low-income communities of color already face. And the South Bronx especially is called Asthma Alley. That area has um, the city's highest rate of emergency care visits for asthma, as well as respiratory hospitalizations. It also has among the neighborhoods hardest hit um, by COVID-19. And, you know, we have 
there's a Harvard study that already links um, air pollution to higher COVID-19 outcomes. Right. And, and you know, what we've been hearing is a, a really staggering degree to which COVID-19 is affecting people of color disproportionately as well. Right. Yeah. Right. When you're thinking about, you mentioned green spaces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, urban design in those places. I mean, we, we know how connected those are to... Uh, to wealth, to race. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between urban design and urban planning and the history of uh, housing developments and some of the other ways that people have been um, placed, really, in some of these neighborhoods that are most at risk? Mm-hmm. Um, early this year, I wrote a story in how some of the legacies of redlining, which, as most of us know, is the government-sanctioned uh, denial of home loans and insurance to communities of color particularly Black households, is a strong predictor of which neighborhoods are essentially uh, disproportionately exposed to extreme heat. Uh, in other cases, although redlining was banned in the late 1960s, we, we still see some um, of its legacies. So predominantly Black neighborhoods are pushed out near a fossil fuel industry or below sea level neighborhoods in Louisiana. So it's not just heat. And one of the things the researchers have told me is that our zip codes are a strong predictor of our health because it shows what we're exposed to. And as I've written before, like so many aspects of the climate crisis, heat doesn't affect all people equally. Uh, Marginalized low-income communities of color, they bear the brunt of these extreme weather events. And in some cases, these are neighborhoods with barely any green space to uh, to cool the residents down as a result of redlining. These places are drastically hotter than their surrounding suburbs and rural areas. And I'm actually working on a story right now on urban green spaces and kind of asking the question on who has access to those spaces and kind of exploring this this idea of, um, of urban green displacement or urban green gentrification. You, you mean like where where parks get located and who you know who's actually right. able to like get to them either by foot or by by transport? Right, like it's a, it's kind of a case study of New York City's High Line, right? So Ch- the Chelsea neighborhood used to be a predominantly black neighborhood or Hispanic neighborhood, and when the High Line came up, it kind of displaced a lot of the communities of color there. Um, they were kind of priced out of that neighborhood. And so kind of exploring the historical aspects of that. I mean, does it strike you that so many of these protests over George Floyd and and over, um, you know, racial injustice are happening in these in these streets that are designed in this way? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that we've been kind of reporting at Gris is that environmental injustice is racial injustice. And one of my colleague colleagues, Navina, um, actually wrote about how some of the state lawmakers have introduced bills that either made, you know, obstructing traffic on highways a, a crime or, you know, has increased penalties for protesting near an oil and gas facility. And some of these proposals were introduced in response to ongoing protests um, against controversial oil pipelines. And that's also including or following, you know, the police killing of Philando Castillo. I, I also wrote about St. James um, Parish in Louisiana, mm-hmm. which is a really good case. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, the LDEQ, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, approved permits for um, this gigantic petrochemical f- 
facility to set up shop in St. James in the middle of the pandemic when the Harvard study came out of connecting air pollution and severe COVID-19 outcomes. And I don't know if you saw news, but that that petrochemical um, facility would set up shop on top of two former um, sugarcane plantation sites and also part of a slave burial ground. So it's kind of like this mm. threat multiplier for African-Americans and these companies are setting up shop in these communities because yeah. they think that they wouldn't fight back or they don't have the capacity to know what's going on. Would, would you, I mean, studying and reporting on these issues, I mean, do you see divisions among climate activists about how much emphasis to put on environmental justice when it comes to, you know, the strategy of climate change. I know I've seen in, in some recent months at least a couple of high-profile uh, writers who are basically getting trolled um, by followers who want the issues to be separate and dislike when environmental justice is at the fore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First of all, I think a lot of times people don't really understand that the environmental justice beat for instance, last week, you know, in the midst of all the protests, one journalist asked something along the lines of on Twitter, does does the media industry need more journalists whose beats focus on criminal justice? And like, if not, which beats do you wish existed in newsrooms? And, you know, I, I live on Twitter, so I replied environmental justice. And the response was something like, that's right, we can't report if we end up killing the planet or something like that, which is true, but not entirely the point that I was trying to make because environmental justice disproportionately kills black people because you know of the air they breathe from nearby fossil fuel facilities. And from my reporting, oil and gas companies choose to set up shop in neighborhoods of color, as I mentioned, because they have this notion that you know, they could get away with air permit violations because they think the residents don't know anything. Well, the reality is they do because these communities are notice noticing a trend and many of them are fighting back. And yes, I, I do think there's a divide among climate activists because it's environmental justice is one of those things that's so complex where people think climate change is just about saving the planet or more extreme weather events. But when it comes to communities, we have to look deeper into, you know, the corporations in power or government officials working to regulate these violations and that are affecting the climate and also the health of communities of color. Hmm. Do you, do you see, I mean, you mentioned, you know, this Twitter post that's happening right now. Do you think that the, the protests that are taking place in this moment are, are changing the narrative in terms of climate activism and environmental justice? Yeah, I, I think it's also hard to say, but there's, right. there is a narrative change right now. In part, I'm thinking thanks to all the young people. Last year, 2019 was sort of a momentous year for the climate movement, especially led by the youth. Um, I was at the UN General Assembly last September and met many of the youth activists from around the world. And I think it's incredible that, you know, they see more deeply into these situations more clearly than the old, older generation. You know, they're worry, worried about their future and rightfully so. And it's brave of them to take on corporations like Exxon, BP, Chevron and whatnot. No, I think I, I think they have changed narrative and they've 
push the needle and move forward the climate conversation. Hmm. Any recommended reading before I let you go for listeners who just want to know more about the connections between race, housing, climate, all the stuff that we've been talking about? Right. You know, there's a ton of books and resources out there in which, you know, you could sort of get a sense of the intersection between environmental justice and housing segregation and race. And one of my favorite actually is the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah Jones, mm-hmm. whose work, you know, I love so much, highlights a few of those intersections starting from the plantation farms. There's also this book that my colleague Yvette Cabrera recommended to me called Moving Toward Integration, the Past and Future of Fair Housing, which um, discusses migration from rural to urban areas in the South, including the great migration to cities like Detroit and Chicago. And I think lastly, I highly encourage reading the work that we do at GRIS since we do work really hard to write about the intersection of race and climate justice. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for the recommendations and thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much, Taylor. That was Rachel Ramirez, an environmental justice fellow at GRIST, speaking with producer Taylor Quimby. This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby, me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, and Felix Poon. It originally aired on NHPR on June 6th. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of content, which is her actual job title, by the way. Special thanks to the organizers and participants from Black Birders Week for sharing their stories. Music in this episode from Jazar, Blue Dot Sessions, Ash Turner, Broke for Free, and Ikimashu Aoi. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Remember that we have a newsletter that you might like to get. We share interesting links, good reading, and occasionally pictures of us goofing off behind the scenes. You can sign up at outsideinradio.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.